Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what's your earliest memory of a haunted house? Uh, not, not a real haunted house where actual ghosts are supposedly running around. We've talked about that sort of thing in the past. But I'm talking about haunted attractions. Place where you go up, you buy your ticket, mm-hmm. you run through the haunted attraction. Various scary things happen. You encounter tableaus that are frightening. People jump out at you. There's smoke. There's light. There's smell, and you leave uh, screaming and giggling. My childhood home. Really? You, yeah. You grew up in a haunted house. No, but my dad loves Halloween, oh, and okay. so as as a tender-hearted five-year-old, I remember going up to my house and seeing that it had been transformed into a graveyard. And my dad had, because um, he worked at the university, and so he went to the department there and got the you know whole makeup thing and aged himself and looked like he was like the gravekeeper dude. And then he also projected the pit and the pendulum on the side of the house. Okay, the the old film. Yeah, yeah, yeah with the blade coming down slowly and uh, you know. Wow, he went all out. He did. So Very that nice. is my first impression of what a haunted house might be like. Okay, you. Uh, I think my earliest, I mean, my family always made a big deal out of Halloween as well, but I don't think we ever really set up a haunted house, per se. But I do remember when we were living in rural Tennessee, uh, my church group would go every year to see this thing that was called Scare Mare, which we, uh, us kids, often referred to as Prayer Mare, because um, the the gimmick was you come to this little rural church out in Mm -hmm. the middle of nowhere, and they put on this haunted house every year, and you go through it, and it's one of these these fundamentalist Christian haunted houses that uh, that each room shows you the, the perils of a sin, uh, and you know this is what's going to happen if you if you drink. This is what's going to happen if you listen to bad music. You know all the, the the type of stuff you can you can imagine. And then at the end, they empty you out into a tent where a preacher uh, sermonizes to you for what felt like an hour or two. And then that was the end of it. That was the prayer mayor portion of it. And it was, you know, it was cheaply done. And, and a lot of it was kind of he- was very heavy-handed even at that age. But they were still using some of the elements of haunted houses that mm-hmm. everyone is kind of used to, that everybody does. A chainless chainsaw, a dude in a mask, somebody with blood on them, someone jumping out at you out of the dark, that kind of thing. It's only really been since I moved to Atlanta as an adult mm-hmm. that I've gotten to really experience a high-grade professional haunted attraction where they really throw everything together and just wallop all your senses with uh, with frightful images, frightful sounds, frightful smells, uh, et cetera. And I'm talking about uh, Netherworld Haunted House. Right. Netherworld is, I think, one of the probably most uh, esteemed haunted houses in the United States and is a fine, fine example, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I did want to say that the, the church, the sort of church uh, haunted houses, forgive my pun, are sort of the genesis of the modern haunted house. Oh, yeah. Uh, because that's actually how haunted houses started. It's a charity event. Uh, but right now we have in the U.S. over 2,000 haunted attractions that charge admission, about 1,000 charity attractions, and 300 amusement parks that have various haunted houses. Oh, yeah. Um, and I wanted to point this out because I did not realize this, that uh, the average person will shell out about $72 on decorations, costumes, and candy for Halloween. And total Halloween spending was $6.86 billion, second only to Christmas and Christmas decorations. So wow. Halloween obviously is is a big deal in our psyche, and uh, haunted houses, I think, are the, the catalyst of it all. 
Yeah, and, and, and that always gets me. It's such, a, it's such a big deal. It's always a big deal to me, but if it's such a big financial deal, then why is Thanksgiving and Christmas, why are they always trying to, to wean in on it and get and show up in October and, and steal some of the spotlight from, from Halloween? Because they're like, hey, as, as long as you as you are uh, dropping some dime on decorations, why don't you pick up a nice little Santa Claus? Yeah, um, and I'm also all for let's start Halloween in September. I kind of started in March, so. I was going to say, yeah. like, in December. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but as you point out, Netherworld is a great example. It's uh, been in the business for 16 years, and it's created by movie professionals Ben Armstrong and Billy Messina. Yeah. And Billy they- Messina did FX on um, Frankenhooker and I think one of the Basket Case movies, to give you horror fans a little perspective. Uh, they use original storytelling, so they don't rely on Hollywood's uh, stereotypes like Freddy or Jason. Mm-hmm. They have thousands of effects. They create custom props, makeup, masks, and monsters. They have a ton of puppetry as well. Yes. Uh, animatronics. And they have more than 100 nether spawn, which uh-huh. are their actors, some of whom are stunt actors. And uh, th- some of these actors are actually professional theater actors, and some have day jobs. And this year, uh, they have the actual beauty pageant winner, Mrs. Georgia, oh, wow. who transforms herself into a ghoul. So you really do see people of all different stripes joining in on this. So for this episode, we, we thought, all right, we're going to do an episode on the science of haunted houses. We should both go to Netherworld and actually check it out for reals, you know. And uh, and so I went out. I checked it out. I went through the attraction. I talked to uh, Ben, uh, one of the uh, the owners and operators and the minds behind all of this. And then you went uh, a few days later and you checked out the behind-the-scenes stuff. So we kind of... Yeah. Uh, we kind of double teamed it. I kind of got the user end of it, and you got the behind the scenes. Yeah, it was really cool. I got to see what it looks like about an hour before the doors open, and it really is like putting on a large scale theatrical production every single night. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the different elements, but it was amazing to see all the actors getting into their costumes. And I think they've got seven different makeup artists. Oh wow! Uh, they've got a room full of masks, which is just <laughs> amazing to see. So the eight-year-old in me was extremely excited to be able to go behind the scenes and go through the maze and kind of see it in the partial daylight. Oh, nice. Were you tempted to grab a mask and sort of hang out? Like, I was, actually. I was, and then I kind of got that vibe of like, you know what? That there are actors here doing that. You don't need to dive in here and try to school, scare people. All right. Well, uh, when I was there, I got a, a few quotes from Ben. So I thought we'd kick things off here and sprinkle a few other quotes throughout. But uh, here is Ben's answer when I asked him, why... As humans, do we like to be afraid? I think when you feel fear, it, it's a really a primitive instinct. You know, when you're the hunter or the hunted, it's a huge surge of adrenaline. And people really enjoy that feeling of terror when they know it's safe. You think you're really scared and you think you're really going to die, it's a bad, sickening feeling. But when you get shocked and scared and then you can laugh about it, it's a euphoric feeling everyone craves. So that was some fun interview material to get there because you can hear some of the craziness in the background uh, because it's right outside, outside Netherworld on a very busy night. There's There are chainsaws, there's screaming, there's laughter. I mean, it's, it's just a, a pretty awesome uh, place to be. And I think that what he's talking about and what you just described, too, in terms of people really having fun with it, is is directly pointing to the benign violation theory, which we've talked about before. Right. When we've talked about it, especially in our episode on laughter and humor and where that comes from. I believe we call that episode Funny or Die. We've dragged this idea out a number of times. You know, the whole uh, a saber-toothed tiger jumps out at you and attacks you. Uh, you're dead, right? But if something else jumps out of you, you're going to react like it's a saber-tooth. And then when it's not... Ha ha, you laugh. That's the signal that 
I thought I was going to die, but not really. So this was the first time I'd gone through a haunted attraction and, uh, and, and certainly Netherworld following that episode that we did. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about benign violation the whole time. And sure enough, I'm seeing it certainly in everybody around me, but even in myself. You know, I'm scared. I'm falling on the floor because something jumped out at me from the side. And then I'm laughing. Yeah, and I mean, it's a cathartic experience, right? right? I mean, there's no secret why we want this and why we seek out this experience. Because it really, we, we are sort of built for that saber-toothed tiger, right? right. So um, it's kind of nice to be able to exercise that in a safe place. And also, I wanted to say that Ben Armstrong had really talked about uh, how important safety is in haunted houses. And um, this is a fine example they have, you know, Something like 32 surveillance cameras. Mm-hmm. They've thought of every single safety aspect when it comes yeah. to haunted houses. Off-duty cops there on security. You have to wait in line before you go in, and there's a lot of fun stuff going on with you know people in costumes kind of scaring you. But then the the, the uh, security is there as well. Uh, I imagine so they can kind of scope out who could potentially be a troublemaker. Uh, when they go in, because you know you should be there for a good time. If you're there to start trouble, you're the wrong place. Yeah, if you just did a couple shots of Jägermeister and went through, that that could be trouble. Um, and they are on the lookout for that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the haunted house layout itself. Yes, <laughs> they, you were not given a map when you show up because that's no. part of it. It's kind of a, a labyrinth that you uh, lose yourself in for a few minutes. Right, and they want to disorient you, so obviously they have um, built it so that they can disorient to you to the best of their abilities, and they use what they call 60-degree walls or six-sided rooms to do this, mm-hmm. and also 90-degree walls. And the 90-degree walls are really trying to, to get you more through the maze itself. Right. Um, but the 60-degree walls, the six-sided rooms are really cool because they have lots of corners to hide actors in what they call scares, and it's easier to disorient or disorient customers and create mazes. And then it gives a different feeling um, of more familiar construction. And we talked about this a little bit in our last podcast about maps and our configuration of neurons and how they mm-hmm. really like the X, Y axis, the horizontal and the vertical, not so much uh, something coming at you diagonally. Yeah, and they're going diagonal on all of these rooms. I mean, right. We're not used to dealing with those rooms. I mean, no matter how crazy the architecture in your house is, chances are you're still dealing with square or maybe in some cases rounded structures. Right, so when they're thinking about the set design of this, already they've kept this in mind, this mm-hmm. sort of natural scare tactics of coming at you from diagonals and from all different places. Um, and then they have something called scare forward and throughput. Okay. And this is sort of like more on the business side because throughput is the rate of people that go through the haunt, and it helps to keep lines a little bit lower and uh, keeps multiple groups from crashing into each other. Yeah, I mean, because on a very straightforward and boring but essential business level, you need X number of people to go through there at a certain rate if you're going to make money. And if you don't, because if you're not making money doing this, I mean, all right, it's all fun and games, but but it's not a business. And really, you know, in a delightfully twisted way, you kind of have to think of a haunted attraction like a slaughterhouse. You, you have a bunch <laughs> yeah. of cattle, and you need to steer them through the attraction at a certain rate without any hiccups. You, you need to keep them moving. You don't. Except, of course, you don't want the cows to freak out. You want the humans to freak out, but to a point. Right. And then if they the freak out goes a little, a little too far, then you need to be able to remove them so that the flow can keep going. And if you are someone who is going to go through a haunted house and you've got a little bit of scaredy pants, here is a tip. You will want to stay at the front. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. I know. that's Because that's, this is the thing. Every year, 
my wife and I do, do this when we go to Netherworld. We're like, yes, let's, we're going to get up there at the front. We're the brave ones. We love this <laughs> stuff. Let's do it. And then we inevitably, I mean, we still get, you know, the bejesus scared out of us. But we'll inevitably find ourselves in the situation where we arrive a little too early. Yeah. And then we spot the monster in the corner just standing there waiting to get the people behind us. And we're kind of like, ah, oh, jump out at me. I want it, man. <laughs> well, see, that's the whole strategy. It's called scare forward. And what they're doing is that they're they're really going at the sides of the group and the back of the group. Because the idea is, again, to get that um, throughput out there and to push the, the, the group forward. So if you are in the front, you're probably not going to get, uh, you know, an act. Or, or a ghoul or a monster two inches in front of your face like someone at the sides or the back of the group would. So they're hurting you. They're essentially, you're being herded by monsters through a slaughterhouse. It's true. Yeah. You are. And, um, you know, we should mention this is probably obvious, but there are bunches of scare pockets throughout that maze. So mm-hmm. Little um, alcoves. Little right alcoves. And, again, that's why those six-sided rooms are so helpful because those corners help to hide people. Uh, and, and they have a number of interesting ways to hide people. You yeah. Can, a lot of hiding in plain sight. Is it a statue? Is it a person? I can't tell unless it moves. Or there'll be something that looks like a person, and you're you're watching it like, all right, buddy, I'm on to you. And then, bam, werewolf jumps out at you from the corner. And it, which is really cool. And we'll talk a little bit more about camouflage in mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk about modes of manual manipulation. Hey, we're back. We're talking about the science of haunted houses, of course, as in haunted attractions. And I'll mention this again, but if you want to check out Netherworld online and see their cool website, go to www.fearworld.com, and you can see all sorts of clips and images and some wonderful write-ups about their attractions. Yeah, and they are doing an excellent job, I have to say, of manual manipulation. In other words, taking our five senses, and, and of course you could argue that we have many more than five senses, but those main five senses and manipulating them through uh, all sorts of things like our sight and our orientation. Yeah, sight, orientation, this is kind of like, I guess in a way, the obvious one, but but some of the subtler ways they do it may surprise you. I mean, on a very basic level, yes, you're walking through these dimly lit corridors, and things are happening. And a lot of, like, especially in another world, a lot of stuff is happening. You're you're distracted by little details, say, like a, some sort of a ghastly framed uh, picture on the mm-hmm. wall that seems to be watching you, some sort of holographic bit of art here, actual skeletons. Uh, just, I mean, they do a wonderful job just on the, the layout of the place. So you're looking at that kind of stuff, but then there, are, there's also other visual things: lights, lasers, moving fog, moving monsters, and it all creates this chorus of confusion. Yeah, and of course the lack of light is is the hallmark, and the reason for that is because if you're plunged into total darkness, then you're not quite sure what's going on. And so there are different parts of the haunt that are that are darker than others. But I did want to just give a quick overview of our sight. That we, of course we have rods and cones in our eyes. Mm-hmm. Cone cells perceive color in bright light, and rod cells perceive black and white images and work best in low light. So. We have something called rhodopsin, and rhodopsin is a chemical that's found in the rods. And rhodopsin is really key to the ability to see during the night. And it's a chemical that the rods use to absorb photons and perceive light. And when a molecule of rhodopsin absorbs a photon, it splits into a retinal and an opsin molecule. This is important because these later recombine naturally back into rhodopsin at a fixed rate. 
but the recombination is very slow. So the reason I'm pointing this out is because when you expose your, your eyes to bright light, all the rhodopsin breaks down into this retinol and opsin, and then if you turn off the lights and try to see in the dark, you cannot because it has to try to recombine. And that's one of the disorienting effects of playing with a light in a haunted house. And here's a fun fact. Okay. Okay. The retinol used in the eye is derived from vitamin A. So if a person's diet is low in vitamin A, there's not enough retinol in the rods, and therefore there's not enough rhodopsin. So people who lack vitamin A often suffer from night blindness. Okay. So if you, you want to really be on, be prepared for your venture yeah. through the haunted house, you want to bone up on your vitamin A. Yeah, you want to just stock up on that vitamin A. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's also a great, uh, because I know I'll I'll be driving uh, at night occasionally when I can't help but drive at night, and uh, and I feel like I can't see anything. So maybe next time I need to bone up on my vitamins. There you go. There you go. Uh, Before you drive and before you go into a haunted house. Or drive into a haunted house. Yeah, yeah, which is an entirely different attraction uh, from the future. But uh, there's also different ways they can manipulate your eyesight. And I saw one um, example of this online from a past Netherworld okay. um, year. But they had a room that was covered in illuminated dots. So everywhere you looked, you could, there's just dots, and you could not see the edges. You could not see anything. And I thought, well, that's fascinating because that's really like obscuring your ability to actually pinpoint your orientation, which is so important, and allow you to have like sort of a fixed, established place in the room. And it's really frightening to even watch the clip of someone coming at you with yeah. dots on, of course, because they're they're melding into the background. Oh, you know, I do. You know, you mentioned this to me yesterday, and I'm like, I don't remember the dots, but now. I, I do think I went through the attraction the year that they had the, the dots because suddenly there's a person that's covered with mm-hmm. dots coming at you as well. And that kind of, of course, throws you off balance, as does their use of sound. Yeah, there is a lot of noise going on in the haunted house. In, those cli- in the clips that we played, you can certainly hear the outdoor noise. And on the inside, you have creepy music. You have uh, loud noises coming from elsewhere in the haunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you're hearing chainless chainsaws rearing up. I mean, that's a staple. There's just no getting around it. Uh, when it comes to chainsaw usage at a haunted attraction, and it's all just creating this cacophony. But then there, there are also these kind of moments of not quite silence, because you're not going to get really silence. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a really soundproof uh, environment. But there'll be like a calm, I guess, before the, 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 the noise comes out of you, specifically like an air gun or, a, or an air horn going off right next to your head. You know, I was thinking about the sensitivity of our ears because we talked about this in the Ignoble podcast and we talked about how if your hearing is delayed, if you hear yourself talking, it's delayed just a fraction of a second. That can just change everything in the machinery and the way that you perceive sound. Mm-hmm. And um, it made me think about the fact that your, your ear is really important in actually uh, detecting the gravitational field as well in giving you a sense of orientation. So when you have all these different elements of sound coming at you, that can really disturb um, your your sense of where you are. And I was also thinking about something called the butt kicker that they use. <laughs> I love the name of it. It actually vibrates the floor. Oh, yes, yes, okay. And also in the world, uh, when I was talking to Ben, he said they've ex- experimented with subsonic frequencies, uh, but they decided not to use them because they have some odd effects on people. Okay, change them into monsters, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. You start to grow hair everywhere. It's it's uh it's not pretty. Um, yeah, they definitely play with your balance a lot. Yeah. Um, there there are squishy floors. There's there are floors that feel uneven. Mm-hmm. There's uh there's kind of a a metal bridge over actual water that's shaky. Uh, to say nothing of the solid bridge that goes through a spinning cylinder, uh, that old effect is uh, 
that, that always gets you because it just throws your balance off completely because yeah. the surface you're walking on isn't moving, but visually you're seeing the room spin. So you react as if the room is spinning. And you're reaching out, right? Yeah. And then, of course, you get another element. You're trying to feel your way through the room, but then you're feeling creepy crawly things. Mm-hmm. The sense of touch is really important. And I wanted to point out, too, that the animatronics at Netherworld spray a lot of air and water at you, too. Yes. You're suddenly you're misted by stuff. And if that's combined with some other sense elements that we'll get to in a second, then it can be really disturbing because you're like, ah, that thing just threw up on me. What is this leaking? I mean, we can have that response anyway if something gets on us that's wet because, sure, it maybe it's raining, but it could be urine. Yeah, exactly. And actually, they do have a bathroom. Uh, did you go through the bathroom area? Oh, yeah, where they have the toilet? Plucked from my dreams, from my nightmares. It's a toilet that is covered in excrement and yeah, maggots. Excrement. Yeah, and they've got little bits of rice that come out from the ceiling from a, I think it's like a air duct or something. They rearrange that toilet every year. So one year in particular, one of the earlier years I went, you had to crawl through a tunnel. And when you emerge on the other side, you emerge right in front of that foul toilet. Yes, again, plucked plucked from my nightmares. Um, But again, that's the sense of touch that you're feeling. And Mm -hmm. we take it for granted, but it's really effective because it's exciting the five different types of nerve endings in your skin that govern sensitivity to heat and cold and pain and pressure and itch. Yeah. Um, so when you are going past those dangling tentacles, your body is trying to figure out what exactly it is. Is it a threat? And um, It's important to mention on this touch uh, business, though, when we're talking about uh, the this touch, touch reception. <laughs> this touch business. I'm shaking my finger here. Um, one of the big rules of any haunted attraction, professional or even just semi-professional, it's, it's kind of the reverse of a gentleman's club. The monsters do not touch anyone yeah. that works that's coming through the attraction. The monsters will not touch you. They may come close to you. They may sort of, they jump out at you, mm-hmm. but they are not going to grab you. They're not going to reach out and mess your hair up or anything. No, I actually got to get behind one of the animatronics, too, and mm-hmm. um, it, it kind of manipulate it to oh, see to the, the point where it goes past someone or, or comes forward to someone. It was pretty cool. Yeah, like the big grabbers? Yeah, mean? the big yeah. grabbers, yeah. Now, I have been grabbed by those, but then, but then again, it's not a person grabbing you. It's a large inflatable puppet grabbing you. So right. it's it's a different thing. And Nobody's, it's soft. And it's and soft, yeah. 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 But even though the monsters cannot touch you, lots of things touch you in this particular hunt. Right. House. The actors will not touch you, but the other things. Like uh, tentacles. I feel like there were baby dolls on strings. There were... Um, <laughs> They're large, inflatable black substances, so you're, you feel like you're squeezing your way out of the belly of some humendous leviathan. Yes, which plays to our fear of small spaces or enclosed spaces and yes. claustrophobia. They warn the heck out of you before you go into any of these, but, but it's certainly not a place for the claustrophobic for someone who is affected by strobe lights or or anything of that nature. Now, one of the walls um, that you kind of have to shimmy through actually does push back. So if someone were having a problem with that... Yes, then they can shut it down at a moment's notice. Yeah, and they can move that wall straight back. So, um, And actually, I think that you yourself could do. You just push it. Uh, But it looks like as though, you know, you have to shimmy through this little um, bit of room here. So I did want to mention that probably one of the most grotesque aspects for me, at least when I was going through the haunted house, was the smells. Oh, yes, the smells. Yeah, the smell. I asked Ben if he could give me a a couple of examples of Mm -hmm. what they use, because, of course, this is a huge mode of manipulation when it comes to us humans. 
And so, uh, so set the scene. It, it's you and, and Ben Armstrong. You're, it, you're in the middle of Netherworld yeah. prior to it opening. We go through the back where mm-hmm. to this little room where he shows me where he's got all these scents that he can spray to freshen up, as he says, the place. <laughs> um, he also has some devices that continuously emit odors. But um, basically, he showed me a couple of, of his select um, odors, and they were swamp, mildew, rotting vegetation, which mm-hmm. I said all of them. I said, oh, that's that's not too bad. That's, you know, I, I can live with that. And then he kind of went, <laughs> and he sprayed the hospital smell. Okay. And then I went, oh, that is the worst, because it really does kind of get under your skin a little bit. And he said, oh, you think that's the worst? And that is when he doused the entire hall in, in, in a big spray of what is called circus animal. Ah. <laughs> I mean, that sounds lovely, right? Oh, yes. circus animal, that's going to be bouquet. great. Yeah. And you and you were like, oh, I used to work at a zoo, no big deal. Right? Exactly. I was like, I can take that. What hit me in the face smelled like the anal glands of an elephant. <laughs> it was probably the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life. Now, of course, he doesn't fumigate the place with that, but he just puts it in certain pockets and it gets to mellow a little bit. So yeah. I really had the more pungent experience and it is still in my car and on my clothes and on my handbag that I brought yes. in. Uh, I, you, you held your, your handbag up for uh, for various co-workers to smell this morning. And it, I did. It is indeed did. Uh, wretched. So we, I may need to get a new computer bag, but we'll see. But that is a huge part of it because, you know, one of the things I noticed is that when I smelled that, uh, the receptors on my tongue even were activated because mm-hmm. I felt like it was in my mouth. And we have talked about this before, that this is a huge warning system for our bodies, that when we smell something that is disgusting or we taste it, we automatically recoil and our bodies tell us that there's something dangerous. Yes, because it could be something putrid, something poisonous, something that's going to harm us in some way. And so the the brain is saying, be, be wary of this. You can look into it, but know that it might kill you. And certainly we can grow accustomed to many foul odors is our brain gives us that chance to, all right, check it out. And if you're comfortable with it, then we'll we'll allow you to not register it as much. But certainly you're not going to have at that kind of time as you make your way through haunted attraction to grow accustomed to circus animal. No, you're not. You're just going to be like, whoa, that's, that's problematic. My body's telling me there's a problem here. So th- I thought that was kind of cool how they set the stage there in mm-hmm. terms of the, how they're manually manipulating your senses, but also they are psychologically manipulating. And this begins uh, at the very moment that you park your car and you get out of it. For some of us, it actually begins before you get there, I have to say. Because oh, yeah? uh, not everyone goes to the trouble of reading the text on the website, but they do an awesome job every year. Uh, just to give you a little taste, there are two haunts uh, each year at Netherworld. This year it's Banshees in the Hive. On Banshees, the cell is, The ancient evil city of Yis has risen from the ocean off the coast of Ireland, bringing with it a plague of Banshees. These foul, eyeless, winged monstrosities feed on the dark energy of dying humans, seeking battlefields and natural disasters where life hangs in the balance. And then the Hive uh, is really good, because it uh, the cell on that is... During the height of the Cold War in 1962, Robert Willington Hughes, a filthy rich genetics researcher, sealed up his staff and followers in an underground bunker called the Hive. <laughs> so so, um, so if, you, if you do like me and you go to the website first, you get that in your head, and you're like, oh, all right, giant insects, uh, Irish myths and banshees, I can get into that. And then when you get there, you get your ticket, you get in line, and the monsters are prowling the parking lot. That's right. And so they're beginning to tell that story mm-hmm. that you are in fear, you're in danger and you should be fearful of what's about to happen. And what I think is so interesting about frightening narratives, and we've talked about this with children too, is that it's, it's kind of playing to this knowledge that at the end of the day, we're all pretty much doomed. 
life is fleeting. Yes. And yet you get to go through this uh, exercise and storytelling and come out on the other end. Now, one of the things that I think is really great that they do is misdirection. This has a huge psychological impact. Yes, and uh, actually I asked Ben Armstrong about misdirection when I went out to the haunted attraction, and this is what he had to say. Everything in here is very much like sleight of hand. You want to create a, a strong visual, a sound effect to draw their attention, then the creature can strike. You have to strike from multiple directions. We use things like camouflage suits or mirrors or darkness or special lighting tricks to conceal the actor. Sometimes the actor is hidden in plain sight as a statue. Sometimes they're invisible in the environment. So it's all about confusing you with visuals, with sound, with everything. Anything we can employ to, to keep you, you know, unaware of the environment so the actor can strike, that's what we're going to do. So, yeah, it's kind of like a card trick. It is a uh, look over here because I'm doing something else over here. Be distracted by this grand movement because there's something sneaking up behind you, uh, and it has the eyes of a monster. Something else they use is camouflage, mm-hmm. and we had mentioned that before. And there's a great clip, uh, I believe it's the Travel Channel that did a bit on Netherworld, and it shows a row of skeletons. And you can see the people are moving through, and they are perceiving this as one unit of just mm-hmm. skeletons on the wall. But, of course, there's an actor who is called a bone clone who comes <laughs> jumping out at the passersby. And, again, it's uh, playing with that idea of benign violation, but also uh, playing with your mind's ability to perceive what is real and what is not real. Uh, you know, you mentioned the bone clone jumping out. Uh, it's important to note that another key rule that Ben is, is big on with his monsters, with his humans, human actors, is that you have the monster jump out at you, certainly, but then they retreat away. Now, part of that is, of course, not involves not touching the person, mm-hmm. but also you need to get the, once the shock has been made, you don't need the person analyzing the monster even in dim light. That's to, you know, less is more. Shock That's true. And then retreat. That's true because yeah. then your brain has more time to think about. Oh, this it's the benign part. Yeah, it can bring it down a notch. Well, what was that? What was going on there? You know, your your, your mind's still running with the questions. And I saw that too with the bungee stunts. Uh, the people who would come out on the bungee cords. Yeah, and swooping retract. down at you from above and then retracting back into the darkness. So we talk about this fear factor. We should probably review the old amygdala when it comes to fear, uh, because this is that almond-shaped clump of neurons uh, in your brain located front and center, and it is really vital for instantaneous emotional processing. So it's not just for fear, too. It's also for love and pleasure. But when it comes to fear, if you have, say, Freddy coming at you, uh, you think Freddy's coming at you, or you're at Netherworld and there's a ghoul coming at you, what is happening is that your amygdala gets juiced, it unleashes uh, your brain and uh, body-energizing cocktail of hormones, And, of course, while this is happening, information is also traveling to your prefrontal cortex. And this is the part of the brain that's really responsible for consciously evaluating danger. And it tells you, hey, it's okay. This is just a person in a mask. So the problem, though, or actually it's not the problem, it's the catharsis. Um, It's actually the the result is that you have all of these things going on in your body and it has Mm -hmm. to come off um, of that fear high. Right. And that's, again, where we're experiencing something really important in terms of acting out our own fears or going through the process. Uh, I found it interesting, too, that uh, supposedly the whites of the eyes, the more of the whites yeah. of the eyes that, are, that is visible, uh, even if the individual is wearing a mask, the, the more the amygdala kicks into action. Because it's like, whoa, someone's coming out at me wide-eyed and crazy. I need to respond to it. Whereas if they're, you know, 
their eyes are shut, then they're probably just going to bump into you. And if they have kind of droopy, sleepy eyes, then they're probably not that dangerous. They've actually, there's been research on this before, too. I believe there was a researcher who set up her own haunted house and did this with her her research students and tracked the the white of the eyes and the amount of fear that the person Mm -hmm. perceived from what her actors, her ghouls, were communicating to the people coming through the haunted house. All right, so here's one more clip from Ben Armstrong, uh, where I was at talking to him and, and asking him about the use of the five senses and, and whether he's you know, really hitting all five senses. And he had a he had a pretty fun answer. Let's see. You can see it. You can hear it. You can feel it. You can smell it. We haven't had monsters yet that you're supposed to lick. That's about it. But you know what? You gave me ideas. Maybe next year. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll... we'll Probably never get lickable monsters uh, in the, yeah. uh, in the, uh, the haunted attractions, but it's a, it's a wonderful idea. It is. A, it's a very interactive idea, and which kind of brings us to this idea of what the future of haunted houses might look like one day, especially if you melded the um, virtual reality technology. Yeah, to a certain extent, you see a lot of haunted house elements in some video games. I mean, you have the whole survival horror um Genre or subgenre of games, stuff like Resident Evil, Silent Hill, um, and then some sort of hybrid games in recent years like Dead Space, which is a, like a sci-fi horror action, but also a survival horror kind of product. And these will typically uh, also uh, some of the Doom games fit, fit into this area. You're inevitably going through cramped hallways that are dark and dimly lit. There'll be uh, like a sparking fuse box on one wall, and something will jump out at you from the side. They can't hit you on all the senses, certainly, but they can. You know, they can make the controller vibrate in your hands. They can do stuff with with uh, with your sight, and they can do stuff with sound. And uh, like I said, to a limited extent, they're experimenting with the haunted attraction area. Yeah, and when I talked to Ben Armstrong about this, he said that, of course, as as different technologies come online, they'll be interested in that. But he said that core to the experience, uh, to their haunted house, is the fact that you have actors and they are really uh, sort of underscoring this play between real and not real. Mm-hmm. And that having the actors makes it a much more immersive experience. So even if we were to get to the point five, ten years from now of putting, say, Google glasses on, Google Vision on, mm-hmm. and walking through a haunted house, you would still want to have that live person element. Um, because without it, it's not quite as immersive. It is interesting that you mentioned the virtual reality, augmented reality goggles and how that could be used for a haunted attraction because you can imagine a future where instead of going to a haunted house you get these goggles you put them on you go through your own house and it creates these virtual frights in the area around you certainly any of the virtual reality dream augmentation dream control technology that we've discussed in previous episodes pretty much all of that could conceivably get a horror or a haunted house twist to it. You know, I can imagine some far future where someone have, would have the option of dialing up a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Or having some sort of um, specter projected onto contact lenses that they're yeah. wearing. So, I mean, really, every day could be Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so there you go, haunted houses. Once again, big thanks to uh, Netherworld Haunted House and specifically Ben Armstrong for taking the time to uh, chat with me, to spray... <laughs> uh, Julie down with uh, Animal Sense, and, you know, just for sharing his enthusiasm for Halloween and for haunted attractions with us and with you guys. And again, if you want to check out their website, 
go to www.fearworld.com. And if you live anywhere in the Atlanta area, go check it out. It's a great attraction, and it's uh, open generally through all of October, but then also into the first uh, week of November as well to get that that uh, Halloween hangover crowd. Yeah, I also wanted to mention to you that Ben is really steeped in mythology, and this is really, you can tell this is uh, an act of love for him every single year. Yeah. And I did ask him what some of his influences are, and he talked about Necronomicon um, as being early influences, and Alien also yeah. as a teenager. So you get, you really do see a lot of that, his worldview, his influences in the attraction. Yeah, he mentioned Pumpkinhead when I talked to him. He's he, He's not a guy who's doing it just to make a buck. You no. know? Because every year you see haunted houses pop up in any large metropolitan area. Some of them last a year, some of them last two years. But it's hard work. It's a year-round thing that these guys engage in. So the, the, the mere fact that these guys have been doing it strong for 16 years lets you know that they're, they're doing it right, and they're doing it because they love it. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So let's see. Do we have time for a listener mail, or should I send the robot away? All right, robot, you can come here with a short one. Just a short one. All right, here we uh, have one from our listener, Emily. Emily writes and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I was listening to your episode about cats, and when you mentioned purring, uh, it reminded me that there is a song by Autechre called Dale, or D-A-E-L. Who knows how you pronounce any of their their tracks, uh, uh, which features a sound that always makes me think of a purring kitten. Uh, so, yeah, check that out. Uh, you can find uh, clips of that online. D-A-E-L. And it does kind of sound like a uh, purring cat. Huh, trying to perhaps manipulate listeners? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. I know I've heard some tracks where people actually throw in purring noises before, but this isn't one. It's more of a mechanical thing that sounds like a kitten purring. And then we also heard from Adam. Adam writes in and says... Uh, I wanted to thank you guys for your excellent episode on the amazing mind of infants. As a recently new father, 9-12-12, I found this topic to be thoroughly entertaining and informative. Watching my little dude gaze about the world won't be the same. I will be thinking about how he is absorbing all sorts of sensory information simultaneously, wondering why a blurry alien figure keeps snuggling, hovering over him. (laughs) Thanks for the magnificent episode, Adam. That's awesome. Yeah, and he's referring to uh, this theory that's out there. It's a little bit wild, but that the fact that... um infants don't quite have everything sorted out in their eyesight that they're seeing a vision of us that would resemble an alien. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. Hovering over them. All right, well, so if you guys would like to check in with us, uh, especially if you want to share your thoughts on the science of haunted uh, houses, haunted attractions, let us know which ones you've really enjoyed, your earliest experiences with, with them, uh, etc., Get in touch with us. You can find us on Tumblr, and you can find us on Facebook. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And you can also find us on Twitter, where we tweet under the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.